Welcome to the Happy Menopause Podcast with me, Jackie Lynch, registered nutritional therapist and founder of the Well, Well, Well Nutrition Clinic, where I specialize in women's health and the menopause. There are so many ways that diet and lifestyle can help to relieve a whole range of menopause symptoms. And my new book, The Happy Menopause, Smart Nutrition to Help You Flourish, is packed with practical nutrition advice to support you through this transition. It's out now and available to order in all the usual places. Join me and my expert guests on a journey through midlife in this podcast and find out how you can have a healthy and happy menopause. Today I want to talk about the Cinderella of the menopause. In recent years, we've become a bit more confident about discussing our menopause. Some women will mention their hot flushes without turning a hair. And the common mental health symptoms such as anxiety and mood swings have also started to come out of the closet, which is a great thing but we're still not quite ready to be open about the vaginal symptoms. So today we're going to shine the spotlight on vaginal dryness, which can be a huge issue for many women through the menopause and beyond. To help us, I've turned to one of the most clinically experienced menopause specialists in the UK. But first I'd like to give a shout out to my sponsor Silk, who make it possible for me to produce this podcast. Their wonderful product is especially relevant to today's theme because it can transform your intimate life. Vaginal dryness can be a real problem during the perimenopause and the menopause, causing itching, discomfort and painful sex. So I'd like to say a big thank you to them, not just for supporting this podcast, but for offering a gentle and natural solution for women with vaginal dryness. Silk's plant-based formula is made in New Zealand with kiwi vine gum extract, which is a natural lubricant. It's water-based and pH-friendly, so that it gently soothes vaginal dryness and irritation, helping you rediscover your love life. It's available at all chemists and off the shelf in larger boot stores. Visit silk, S-Y-L-K to order your free sample. And so on to today's episode. I'm delighted to be speaking to Cathy Abernethy, who's been a leading light in the field of women's health and the menopause for over 30 years. From her early years as a sister on a gynae ward, through her time as chair of the British Menopause Society, and now as the leader of a multidisciplinary NHS menopause clinic and director of menopause services at Peppy Health, a digital health company, she has consistently championed women's health and transformed the lives of hundreds of women with her clinical advice and support. There is no better person to give us the lowdown on how to manage vaginal dryness. So let's hear what she's got to say. Welcome to the Happy Menopause, Cathy. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thrilled to have you here. It's great to be hearing all your expert advice and knowledge. So looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. But before we drill down into the subject of today, I'd like to find out a little bit more about you. So could you tell us your story? You know, what's your background and and how did it lead to where you are now? Thank you. It's an interesting experience, really, because I didn't choose to work in menopause. I don't know if anybody actually chooses to work in menopause. Um, It's something that I dropped into by chance. I've been a women's health nurse for many, many years. And when I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to work in health, but I was torn, really torn between physiotherapy and nursing. So I did some voluntary work um, in each, and I decided it was nursing that I wanted to do. What attracted you to the nursing? 
I liked the immediacy of it at the time. You were caring for people straight away. Mm. So I went into nursing. I very soon discovered that I like gynecology, which now has become women's health. I felt that I could do some good there. So that's what I started to do. Did you end up on a specialist gynae ward or or were you in the community? Where were you? Yes, I ended up being a ward sister on a gynae ward, but we're going back a long way now, Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, what happened was that I was very happy doing that. I really enjoyed it, but I got married. Um, And in those days, as a ward sister, we had to do one week in four night duty. And I was just adamant I was not going to do that. So I took the first job, which came along, which was Monday to Friday, nine to five. And it happened to be researching HRT patches. Oh, oh, it all becomes clear. (laughs) So tell us about that. So I had to persuade people that these little bits of sticky plastic were going to do them good for their menopause, because in those days, nobody had seen an HRT patch. Yeah. So when was this? I mean, how many years ago are we talking, if you don't mind saying? (laughs) Oh, you're showing my age now, Jackie. (laughs) 1985, I first started working at King's College Menopause Clinic. Wow. Gosh. Okay. So we're really chatting to menopause royalty here, everybody. This is going to be fascinating. So what happened next? Where, Where did you go from there? So having done that research project, I realised that actually these women were having a really tough time. So I stayed on and worked in the menopause clinic. And then my partner and I moved around the country. So I went from menopause clinic to menopause clinic to menopause clinic, did a short stint with the uh, Osteoporosis Society, and then came back to London, uh, where I've been in the menopause clinic for about 20 years now, over 20 years. How do you think perceptions of the menopause have changed over over all the years you've been working in it? Oh, Jackie, it's changed absolutely enormously. When I first started, nobody wanted to talk about menopause. In fact, my mum was embarrassed to tell people what I did. And when I wrote my first book for nurses on menopause, she wouldn't show anybody. She was very proud of me as her daughter, but she wouldn't show anybody the book because she was embarrassed by the topic. Right. Whereas more recently, the book that I've written more recently, my mother-in-law has it on her coffee table and shows it to everybody that comes through the door. (laughs) As it should be. Absolutely. It's so much more easily talked about now. It is. I mean, I think there's a real sense of it finally coming out of the closet, but it's been a long road. And I imagine a lot of it is down to the work that people like you have been doing over the years. Well, certainly people may not realise, but the British Menopause Society celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. So, you know, it's been around for a long time. And I was one of the founding members. And we've worked really hard to try not only to put menopause on the agenda, but actually quietly and silently getting guidelines and nice guidelines and things in place, consensus statements in place, so that women do get good care. But of course, it hasn't always worked well. Tell us about the the BMS Centre. What is the British Menopause Society? What's its main role? The British Menopause Society is there for health professionals, and it's there to set standards of care and make sure that those of us who see um, and advise women are given high quality, accurate, evidence-based advice and treatment. And Mm -hmm. it it works really well. It sets up training as well for healthcare professionals. But you can set up as much training as you want. You can't make doctors do it, unfortunately. And so there's been a lot of doctors who have chosen not to opt into menopause training. Really? Gosh. Yes, it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because that has an exponential effect on on women in the community. That's extraordinary. Yes, and it's partly, as we know, because of all the anti-HRT messages that have been over the last 20 years or so, some GPs feel uncomfortable prescribing it because they're not up to date. It is changing, though. I mean, the waiting list now for courses for the British Menopause Society is very long, and we've had to put on 10 extra courses this year in order to accommodate GPs wanting to do training. Well, that is very encouraging. Now, I know that as well as a founder member, you've also been the chair of the BMS. So what were the challenges around that? Well, the first challenge was that I was the first chairperson who was not a doctor. 
which was revolutionary because until that time it had always been a consultant uh, medic who had done it. So that really reflected the multidisciplinary aspect of the society. So I was very proud of that. Um, It was good. so. Yeah, I mean, I was chairman at the time when women started to really open up about menopause. And really, we've got women themselves to thank as to why the conversation is now much more easy. Because certain groups Mm. of women have decided we've had enough. This has to happen. And they have widened the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a very positive thing. Now, a minute ago, you touched on the whole HRT thing and the fears around HRT. And I, I think it it all sort of kicked off around, well, around the start of the century, which is a horrible thing to have to say. <laughs> but can you just sort of tell us a bit of background to that and explain what, what went on? Yeah, so up until about 2002, HRT was considered to be good for everybody and it was being prescribed very frequently and very accurately for menopause symptoms. And then suddenly in 2002, a big American study came out, which frightened everybody. And it's not that it wasn't a good study. It was a good study. But what we now know with hindsight is that it wasn't on the right women. So the type of woman who takes HRT here in the UK was not represented in that study. But the publicity from that study had a rebound for decades. Mm. And, And that rebound was? Women stopped HRT. They wouldn't have the confidence to use it and GPs stopped prescribing it. Mm. And I suppose the whole conversation stopped a bit as a result. Yes, because women tended to feel that they wouldn't go and see their doctor because they were anxious about ending up on HRT. But that meant they didn't get all the other information and advice that they could have done. Yeah, yeah, it's a tragedy, really. And I do feel it's very frustrating when these things happen. I find that a lot with nutrition research that comes out because essentially press are often just looking for a really great headline and you'll suddenly discover one week that coffee will save your life and the next week coffee will kill you or whatever it might be. And what you need to do is, of course, drill down into the research, which usually says something very, very different from the headline. So it's it's very difficult, I think, when scientific research then, then gets sort of expressed in the press and sometimes perhaps, unfortunately, misrepresented. It is. And it's very difficult for women to get accurate information. So, you know, we're trying to improve that as well. Um, In the world of menopause, if you like, we're trying to make sure that the information that women have access to is good evidence-based and research-backed. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And as it should be. So from chair of the BMS, you've also launched Peppy Health, haven't you? So how did that come about? That was an interesting one because Peppy is about supporting women in the workplace. Now, my whole career has been spent in a hospital. So I've always supported women who've been referred by their GP. So Mm. they tend to be women who are at the more extreme end of menopause, if you like, the ones who are having particularly bad time. But when I was approached to work with Peppy, it made me realize that actually I could reach the everyday woman, women at work, because that's where we spend most of our time. So Peppy supports women through the workplace but offering personalised menopause support with nurses like me. So your employer would sign up to Pepe and then you would have access um, confidentially through Pepe to a practitioner like me for personalised support. Right. So you can somehow bypass, perhaps if your GP isn't as sympathetic as you might like, you can bypass that and come directly to you or someone like you. Yes, and not everybody wants a medical approach to their menopause. So at Pepe, we give all options and all alternatives that are available and and allow women to make their own choices. And for some women, that will be HRT, and for some, it won't. Well, I can't say how good it is to hear that because I feel exactly the same way. I feel really strongly that women should have all the information available to them and and that it's important not to be entrenched in your view because, yes, diet and lifestyle and a holistic approach can do a lot. HRT can do magnificent things. 
either of those might be right for you. A combination might be right. Everybody's different. And I think it's rather than making up your mind in advance, I think going to get that information and finding out what's right for you is so important. I'd agree, Jackie. Yeah. So anyway, let's get down to the nitty gritty of today's theme, which is vaginal dryness. Again, probably the the, the least popular subject, I think. I've I've taken a while to bring it to the podcast because I, I didn't want to scare everyone by making it one of the earlier episodes. I think while menopause has become something we're a lot more confident about discussing, I think once it starts to get to vaginal health, people are still a little bit shy. So great that you're here today to demystify it for us. First of all, I know there's often a lot of confusion about the actual sort of physiology of it all and the difference between the vagina and the vulva. So can you give us a a sort of basic rundown of what's going on down there? Yes, and I'm never surprised that women don't always understand the physiology because actually nobody teaches us, nobody tells us, nobody gives us a mirror and shows us what's down there. So it can be very tricky. But Mm. essentially, the uh, vagina is the tube or the channel that we usually, where the childbirth is and where you have sex if you're having a partner sex with a man. But the vulva is the area around the outside, what some people will call the outer lips of the vagina or the inner Mm. lips of the vagina and the skin. So that whole area is affected after the menopause and can become very dry and uncomfortable. So what sort of symptoms are you going to get with the dryness? It will vary from woman to woman. Some women, it will be manifested simply by painful sex and it will be comfortable at other times. For other women, it will be even outside of lovemaking. They'll start to feel sore, dry, Mm. itchy. And even painful. And what's going on there? Which hormones are directly affecting that? So as we go through the menopause, we have a decline in um, a lot of hormones, but it's the estrogen that really affects the vaginal tissue. And the Mm. vaginal tissue is very sensitive to estrogen changes, particularly in the long term. So you tend to get flushes and sweats and things in the short term, although they can last a long time. Whereas vaginal symptoms are often a longer uh, consequence of menopause. They can start many years after the menopause. And of course, associated with the vagina is bladder symptoms. It's not just the vagina, but at the same time, it affects the bladder opening. So you get urgency, getting up at night and a little bit of uh, sometimes just not quite getting there. Mm, yes. I mean, the, those whole issues around stress incontinence where you leak a little bit of urine when you laugh or run or sneeze, those can often be issues. So I think it, it's important to understand that the long term nature of what's going on with your vaginal health, isn't it? Because while some of the, the the other symptoms will often settle down once your body adjusts to the new version of you and your hormones, whether you're on HRT or not, things eventually mostly settle. But with vaginal health, actually, it's more of an ongoing and almost a rising graph, isn't it, in terms of what you need to think about? Absolutely. And whereas we think about menopause symptoms as being, for most of us, a midlife issue, though not all of us, whereas vaginal dryness can last well into our 70s, 80s and beyond. And I think that, as you mentioned, the, the, the bladder issues, I think it can also trigger other ongoing issues such as urinary tract infections. Is that right? Yes, because the pH or the acidity of the vagina changes as well. And so the bladder opening becomes affected by that. And mm. it causes irritation when you go to the toilet. So you feel as if you've got more infections than you actually have. But you mm. can also get infections in the vagina because the natural lubrication and the natural pH is altered. So you're, mm. if you like, your friendly bacteria that we talk about are disappearing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So getting that balance right is key. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why when we look at that elderly women, particularly perhaps in later life in care homes and so on, who are so prone to issues around bladder infections, urinary tract infections and so on. Yes, absolutely. And there's lots of us who feel that actually that's where the oestrogen needs to be is in the care homes for Mm. the vaginal treatment and the vaginal bladder symptoms. 
Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, of course, it's such a huge issue because not only is it going to cause lots of pain and discomfort, but in, in elderly women, there's the whole issue around confusion that that can lead to if it's left untreated, which can exacerbate perhaps other symptoms as well and cause a lot of worry. Exactly. And then they get up in the night, night after night, and then they have a tendency to fall over. Yeah. Yeah. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, dear listeners, it's really all about sorting out that vaginal dryness. Cathy, how can we deal with it? What, what are the options available? We've got several options open. And the most obvious first one is to just moisturise regularly. So we look at our hands and we think, oh, that needs a bit of hand cream. We should be doing the same with our vagina. So you can regularly moisturise your, your vagina using different products, I should say, than you would use on your hands. So vaginal moisturisers are the first option. Then think about whether you need a lubricant at the time of sex. And nobody tells us that actually it's normal to need lubricants as we get older and as we go through the menopause. So that will alleviate some of the pain. And then also, if you want to treat the underlying cause, you can use oestrogen. Okay, so let's park oestrogen for a second and go back to the moisturiser and lubricant. What's the difference between them? So a moisturiser is designed to be a little bit longer lasting. So you apply it maybe two or three times a week, usually. It doesn't contain any hormones and it encourages the skin or the tissue to retain moisture. So it helps to stay a little bit cushioned and a bit soft. Whereas a lubricant does what it says, it's there to make everything a bit more slippy. So it's great for soothing and also for time of lovemaking. Okay. And so in terms of actually applying the, the, the moisturiser, for example, is it actually internal? Are you going to need some kind of applicator? How, do, how does all that work? What's the easiest thing to be doing? So you can apply it both internally and externally. And it depends on what you are most comfortable doing. Because if you're familiar with your body and you're used to using things like tampons, you may be completely comfortable putting moisturisers and lubricants in without an applicator. But applicators are available and a lot of the products come that you can choose either. Mm, okay. So what should we be looking for? Because I imagine just like with moisturisers, there are all manner of facial moisturisers out there. I'm sure it's the same here. What's a good product? What should we be looking for to make sure we're getting the right thing? So because your tissues in the vagina could be quite sensitive, and you may even have blood vessels very close to the surface, so it could be very easy to irritate. So you want a lubricant that's nice and natural. You want something that works, something that isn't going to just um, sit there, but is actually going to do the job it wants it to do. And you want something that's not going to be painful. So not too many perfumes, not too many irritants and additives. Mm, okay. So when you say natural, what are we looking for on the label? Are there certain additives you'd be looking to avoid? Or uh, in the same way as with food, you might be worrying about a number of E numbers. Is it the same with this? What are we looking at? I think you're wanting to look for things that are described as natural, because that means they don't have lots of additives in it. Mm. Parabens free as well is quite important and perfume free. Okay, so that's the moisturiser and the lubricant. And for some women, can that do the trick? I mean, can it cover everything? Yes, certainly, particularly in the short term. For many women, that's enough and they can postpone maybe taking oestrogen later on. Or if you're already on HRT, using moisturiser and lubricant on top can be enough. Mm, okay, okay. So let's talk about vaginal oestrogen because that's very different, isn't it, from systemic oestrogen. Talk us through it. Yes, I mean, I spend a lot of time, Jackie, trying to remind women that vaginal oestrogen is not considered to be HRT because it's not going to do anything other than reach the vagina and the bladder. So it won't help hot flushes or look after your bones or any of that. Mm. So it just treats the area that you want it in the vagina. And I think there are more oestrogen receptors in the vagina than anywhere else, aren't there? It's certainly a very an area that's very rich in oestrogen receptors, yeah. Mm. So it's it's like a garden that needs watering. 
That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> so how does it help? I mean, what, what difference does it actually make? And is it tricky to apply? So vaginal oestrogen also comes in different forms. You can get gels, creams, you can get a pessary if you prefer a drier type of applicant application. There's even a ring if you want to um, have a ring in, you can leave it in for three months and it will release oestrogen very slowly. So it should come down to personal preference. Some of us will prefer one way of taking it to the other. But the important thing is it's all really low dose. It's not going to get into the body and therefore it carries none of the risks or side effects that we associate with normal HRT. Okay, now that is really important. Let's just drill down into that. So if we're talking to a woman who does have some kind of medical history that either precludes her having systemic oestrogen or she doesn't feel comfortable having it, how comfortable can she be having the the vaginal oestrogen? Well, they should always talk to women should always talk to their doctors or their consultants if they're under a, a specialist. But there are very few women who can't use vaginal oestrogen. Even if they've had cancer, they can often use it. And certainly if they've had blood clots or or heart attacks and things that might stop them using some HRTs, they often can use vaginal oestrogens. And women who have breast cancer, they might need to be a little bit cautious. But with supervision from a, a knowledgeable doctor, they often can use it. Okay, that's very reassuring and really useful to know. Now, a minute ago, you used the word pessary, and not everyone might be familiar with that. So what's a pessary? So a pessary is um, very often a bullet-shaped product which you insert into the vagina and it releases very slowly into the vaginal tissue. But when you apply it, it's dry and then it melts when it gets inside. Okay. And is that a daily application or is it over a period of a month or something like that? Almost all the vaginal oestrogens start with a priming dose. So you use it every day for two weeks, sometimes Mm -hmm. three weeks, and then you reduce it down to usually two to four times a week, depending on your own personal response. Okay. Sounds very interesting. Can you give us any kind of feedback or or thoughts on the difference it can make and how quickly it might make that difference? Yes, it doesn't work overnight. You do have to be a little bit patient, vaginal oestrogen. And also, I always say to um, ladies that I talk to that it doesn't mean that you won't use, won't need moisturizers and lubricants. So you you know, you may well need those as well as your vaginal oestrogen. But what it will do over time, over two to three months, is it will increase and improve the actual cell growth in the vagina. So you're treating it at its cause so that it becomes healthier. Mm, Yeah, so it really is a topical treatment, isn't it? Okay, so how can women get hold of it if they're thinking to themselves, this sounds good? It is only on a prescription, unfortunately. So you have to um, ask for it at your doctor's surgery. Because of COVID, almost all telephone, almost all consultations are now telephone, um, which actually makes it easier for some issues. So you prepare for yourself in the consultation and you bravely say to your doctor, I would like some vaginal oestrogen, please. What's your advice for women who are a bit shy of broaching the subject? How can they prepare for that appointment? I think um, you take some deep breaths firstly, because it is a personal issue. And I completely understand Mm. that it's not something that we're used to talking to complete strangers about. So, you know, don't be surprised if you feel a bit uncomfortable talking about it. But remember that your doctor or your nurse, whoever you're talking to, has talked about much worse topics than vaginal dryness and much more intimate topics as well. So it really is an everyday thing for doctors and nurses to be talking about. So as I say, you know, take a deep breath, be, have it written down if necessary, and be specific in what you're wanting. They're not going to go into lots of information. They're not going to ask you to justify it. They're not going to ask you to describe your sex life or anything like that. They're just simply going to say, yes. And once you've started taking it, is that it? Do you have to carry on taking it? 
or, or is it something you could stop and start or is that not the way to approach it? It's not wise really to stop and start because as soon as you stop, um, eventually all that will happen is that your symptoms will come back again. So it's better to actually see it and view it as a long-term treatment. And because it carries no risks, it's good to build it into your life as a long-term treatment. Mm, right, I see. Okay. So I'm all about nutrition, as you know. So what are your thoughts on diet and lifestyle? Can that make a difference to vaginal health? I think it's an interesting topic because I think there's nothing about our bodies that doesn't respond to a better diet and lifestyle, is there? Um, So drink plenty of water, stay hydrated, because if you're dry everywhere in the body, then your vagina is going to be dry as well. Pelvic floor exercises are really important um, for your bladder health, but also for the vaginal tissue. So that can be done. Watching your weight, supplement wise or dietary wise, I think the omega oils can help to promote lubrication. And I'm thinking particularly of number three and number seven, they seem to be the two that can be useful. And I think the most important lifestyle message that I'll give is don't over cleanse your vagina. Don't think that you need vaginal scrubs, for example, because you don't. Sorry, I'm just shuddering at the thought (laughs) of a vaginal scrub. Yes, there are a lot of, uh, quote, lifestyle things out there, aren't there? And you touched on it earlier saying you don't be using perfumed products, for example, when you're at such a sensitive stage of of your vaginal life, as it were. So really being careful about that kind of thing is important, isn't it? It is. And your your vaginal tissue is very sensitive. So, uh, you know, it it actually is self-cleaning and looks after itself. So you don't really need to do very much for it at all. Mm, Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think from the nutrition perspective, what's important for everyone to remember as well is that it is skin, it is tissue. And in the same way as you would eat a careful diet because you want your face to be glowing and and plump and healthy, um, your your vaginal tissue will benefit from that as well. So really be thinking about that, that very broad diet, eating plenty of vegetables because they're such a great source of vitamin C. And of course, vitamin C is what the body will use to build collagen and collagen is the compound that keeps our our skin and our tissues and our vaginal tissue plump and elastic so that it's going to be much more flexible and therefore what you won't have the, the same issues so it's much more of a roundabout way and I'm certainly not sitting here saying well you know if you eat more vegetables then you don't need to worry about your vagina but I think your point's very well made that having a, a very good diet and lifestyle, a very broad range of different nutrients in your diet is inevitably going to support your skin at all levels of the body. I'd agree. And it's interesting you talk about, you know, looking after your skin everywhere, because actually your vagina is the one area where you do want wrinkles and where you do want it to remain flexible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you also touched earlier, of course, on on the the microbiome and the beneficial bacteria. And it's really important to to be looking at that. And one of the things women can try, at least on a daily basis, is is to be having something like natural yogurt, because it does contain the lactobacillus. And that's the strain, which is the most commonly found in the vagina that helps to protect the pH levels. So there are some small sort of background things you can be doing that can just make sure that you're giving yourself the best possible chance really. Yes, I'd agree with that. Cathy, what are you working on at the moment? Any exciting projects coming up? Well, I'm really excited about workplace things at the moment. I mean, even the government is now beginning to get really interested in making things better at work for everybody, not just for women, but including women. Um, We've got the Department of Health Strategy at the moment, which is asking all of us to think about how we can improve women's healthcare. And I'd encourage all of you that are listening to contribute to that, if you can. Um, I've made my contributions as to what I think needs to be improved. 
And with Pepe, we've got more and more employers coming on board now. And it's really exciting to see that places are really interested in looking after their staff going through the menopause. Yeah, it's it's becoming much more mainstream. And that is so encouraging because there's some dreadful statistic out there about one in four women considering leaving their work due to menopause symptoms. And that's simply not good enough. I mean, that's a female brain drain that's that's unacceptable for, for the business and the economy in general, but also so dreadful and unfair on the women. Yes. And I mean, the over 50s, women over 50 are the fastest growing demographic in the workplace now. So we're very significant on an individual basis as well. If you're experiencing awful menopause symptoms at home, then it is going to affect you at work as well. Even something like vaginal dryness, you know, sitting, we're spending so much more time now sitting, we're working from home. Even something simple as that can be affecting you at work. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So where can people find you if they want to find out more about Peppy Health and the work that you're doing? So if you're interested in the employer support in menopause, then it's looking at the Peppy website, which is peppy.health. And if you're wanting to contact me at all, it's my own website, which is kathy.abernethy.com. Great. And I will be sure to put links to all of those on the show notes on the podcast page of my website so that everyone can access them easily. And you mentioned your book briefly. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. So it's called Menopause, the one-stop guide. It's um, available from all the places that you would normally buy a book from. And it's really, I wrote it because I found that women were asking me lots and lots of questions. And they didn't just want to know about HRT and they didn't just want to know about diet. They wanted to know about all aspects of not just getting through menopause, but looking after their health as well into the years beyond menopause. Because it doesn't feel like it, but we're going to have many, many years beyond the menopause where we want to be in good health. So I wrote the book to um, equip women to get there and to really look after their health. Great. I mean, I'm all for that. Sounds fantastic. So finally, we've come to the end and I would like you to share with us from all the things you've learned. And we know that it's been many years that you've been working in the menopause arena. So from your own experience and what you've observed with the the menopausal women you've you've worked with uh, over all these years, what are your top two tips for, for women in midlife and beyond? So sometimes I'm shocked that people are so uninformed about the menopause because, of course, it's my life. So I think everybody knows as much as I do. So I would say that my number one tip is to find out what what can happen at the menopause. Find out what's normal. It doesn't mean that you're going to get every symptom under the book. But do your your homework, learn about the menopause. And you do that by choosing carefully where you look, because there's a lot of internet sites around menopause. Just ask yourself who's written the site. Are they selling something? Are they promoting something? Is it evidence-based? Is it supported by nice guidance? Uh, That would be my Mm -hmm. first tip. And my second one is to be open and flexible. And you alluded to this earlier, which is, I like to liken it a bit like pregnancy, which is we all know how we want to give birth, but actually on the day, all sorts of things happen and nature takes over and we don't always have the birth that we want, but we end up with a beautiful, healthy baby, we hope. And I think at menopause, you know, you may feel that you want to do it one way, but keep, keep your mind open and know your options. Brilliant. Very wise words. Cathy, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating and really useful to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, I did say Cathy would be good value, and so it's proven. She's given us so much brilliant expert advice that I hope you feel more confident about tackling any issues you might have around vaginal dryness and making sure you get the support that you need. Remember that this is an issue which can have long-term consequences on your health and well-being. So now is the time to give your vagina a bit of love. If you'd like to find out more about Cathy and the work that she does, you can visit the show notes on the podcast page of my website, well 
www.hyphenwell.co.uk, where I've put links to her clinics and social media and her book. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen on. And make sure you tell all your friends. It makes a huge difference to the visibility of the podcast and really helps to spread the word. Next month, I'll be discussing how to beat brain fog. So make sure you subscribe via your favourite platform so you don't miss out. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.